So Corinthians is a church that Paul visited um, in Acts, obviously. Actually, let me start with reading Acts 18, verses 7 to 11 as a backdrop. And he departed from there, Paul, and entered the house of a certain man named Justice, who worshipped God, whose house was next door to the synagogue. Then Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all his household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing, believed and were baptized. Now the Lord spoke to Paul in the night by a vision. Do not be afraid, but speak and do not keep silent, for I am with you. And no one will attack you to hurt you, for I have many people in this city. And he continued there for a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. Let's actually start with prayer. Lord, I do thank you for your word. And... For the message you have this morning. I do pray for the safe travels of Pastor Bill and Patty, uh, that you would keep them safe and bring them back to us safe and sound. This morning, Lord, as we do hear your word, that you would touch our hearts, that you would open, open our hearts to what you have for us. And Lord, help us to always keep our eyes on you, Lord, uh, as we're studying, knowing that Nothing is about us, but it is all about you. So as we read your word, may we always see you. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so Paul was in Corinth for a year and six months, and God wanted him to have no fear of being there. He wanted to make sure he taught there um, without hindrance. So it was a church that was close to his heart, one he had spent time with, he knew the people. And when you read the book of Corinthians, he speaks of many of them by name. Uh, he knows the people personally. So when we get to 1 Corinthians 10, it is actually in context of chapters 8 and 9. Now chapter 8, well, some other things wrong with Corinth, the church of Corinth. They had problems with division. Now, they would say, I'm of Paul, or I'm of Paulos, or I'm of Cephas. It'd be like this congregation splitting up and saying, well, I kind of like the way Pastor Bill teaches better, or you know what, I, I only go to Dustin's Bible study, or you know, I might follow Eric, but you know what, I really prefer lessons on Monday. It'd be like the congregation splitting up. When we're really, we're all unified, we're all under one person. We're not under Bill, or Eric, or Dustin, or Les, or whoever. We're all under Christ, because Christ is the surgeon, for lack of a better word, whereas Bill, Dustin, Les, and I, and anybody else who teaches, we're just the scalpels in his hand. We're just the tools. And one of the things Corinth was doing is they were causing divisions in this way, which uh, it does mention is a sign of immaturity. Another problem they were having is they were a very liberal church. They had a man who had his father's wife, or what was his stepmom. And they were okay with it. And they thought, look how liberal we are. Look, look how forgiving. Look how gracious we are. And that was also wrong. They were getting drunk when they were having communion. And there were many other things they were doing. Um, but those are three of, the, three of the bigger things that come to mind. The fourth thing is what's mentioned here in chapter 8. Chapter 8, the church was going to buy meat from the meat market. In the meat market, the meat came... Uh, where was I? Oh, so the meat came from the meat market. The meat market meat, sorry, came from the idol temples. So they'd be sacrificed to the idols, and then the meat would be sold in the market. I'm not going to get this thing. If I could do this without my glasses, I would. So... The argument Paul made was, look, we know the idols are nothing. They're, they are demons, but we know that idols compared to God, they're nothing. The meat doesn't matter. You can eat the meat. But the Christians who were new or who were not as mature as those who were eating the meat were stumbled by the fact that they were going to these idol temples or these meat markets and buying the meat. And they didn't want to give up that right because of the weaker Christians. And 1 Corinthians 9 is Paul 
laying down arguments as to the things he's given up. He says, look, I'm an apostle. I've seen Jesus Christ. I have all these privileges that I can take advantage of. But I don't want to take advantage of any of them because it's much more important for me to show the love of Christ and to serve Christ and to build up my brethren than it is for me to worry about where my meat comes from. And so he's telling them, look, just give it up. It's a small thing. And again, the Corinthians are so high and mighty on their horse because they're like, well, you know, we're liberal. We do all these things. We've had all these experiences. You know, they also had this thing where they spoke in tongues out of order. It was very distracting to the congregation they had. They're doing all these things and they didn't want to give it up. But Paul's saying, look, at the end of chapter nine, we're all running the race and there's these side projects, these side issues that you guys are being hung up on. They're hindering you running the race. You're going to be disqualified. He said, you got to discipline yourself. Get rid of those side issues, which is what Paul was saying he did in the beginning of chapter 9. He said, get rid of it. Just run the race. And then he goes into chapter 10 saying, okay, look, let's learn from the past. Let's learn from history. Because I don't want you to be disqualified. And so what he does is in verse this is one through four of chapter 10 is he lists all these privileges that Israel experienced. So verses one through four of chapter 10 of Corinthians, for I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud and that they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. So he says, I do not want you to be ignorant. And really he's saying is, look, I don't just want you to know the information. You need to know this information. This information is important. It's important to your growth. It's important to your walk in Christ. If you want to excel, this is stuff you need to know. And I'm not sure if he was, you know, they were also proud of how much they knew. They were very uh, puffed up with the knowledge they thought they had. So I don't know if he's trying to get their attention with this because they're like, well, wait, we already know this. He says, no, maybe you don't know as much as you think you do. So what were the privileges and blessings experienced by Israel? One, they were all under the cloud. Two, they all passed through the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food. And they all ate the same spiritual drink. Now he brings up the fact, he says, our ancestors. He's speaking to a Gentile church. There were Jews there, but he's speaking to them as a whole. And in reality, Israel really is our ancestor because they were the people of faith, God's chosen people of faith. We are people of faith. We are chosen of God. Now the first benefit, the first privilege was under the cloud. Now it says the pillar of cloud was with them for 40 years and the cloud was really representative and it was God's presence. It was this cloud of God's Shekinah glory and it overshadowed Israel throughout their journey in the wilderness. So when the cloud stopped as they were traveling, they would stop everything they were doing. They would pitch all their tents and whether that lasted a day or a month, if the cloud decided to move again, they would all pick up their tents and they would travel again. And they'd follow the cloud by day. And at night, the cloud burned as a pillar of fire. And so it was always a constant reminder of God's glory and presence in their midst. You can read about that in Exodus 13. Uh, Pastor Bill went through that last year, I believe. Now, they're traveling through the desert. So they have this cloud by day, fire by night. They're traveling through the desert. They're traveling through the harshest environment. And they're shaded by this cloud. So they're going through a trial. If you ever hike through the desert, um, when I was in the school of E, we went through Death Valley on our hike on our, what was it called? We had a, I forget what they called it now, but we went through Death Valley. We hiked there for a week in March and we had a day where we had to sit alone and fast and pray for 24 hours. And luckily it was March. So the hottest it got was like 85, but uh, it still got hot, gets hot when there's no shade. 
But Israel is traveling through the desert. There is places they stop with palm trees, but a place with 70 palm trees doesn't cover two to three million people. But the cloud, it says, it covered the people. It gave them uh, respite from that. Uh, There was a time... um, my dad was in the Navy. He was stationed in Rhode Island at one point. And when we got stationed back here, my dad and I drove across country from Rhode Island to California. When we got to the Mojave Desert, and he, we're driving a Ford Ranger towing a Ford Escort, the radio announcer says, if you don't want your truck to overheat, turn on the heater. So we turned on the heater in 105-degree weather and traveled through the Mojave Desert. And my dad said, you know what, it's probably cooler in the back. Go ahead and climb into the back. So I climbed in the back, and it was a little bit cooler, but the respite was not as much as probably the cloud was for the Israel. But that's kind of the image I get is, you know what, my dad's like, you know what, it's cooler back there. Go ahead and take it back there. But that's what this cloud did is, you know, it it was a trial they were going through, going through the desert because they were disobedient. So they had to go for 40 years. But it was a harsh experience that was governed by God. So the full brunt of it never came upon them. So any trial that we're going through, God is in control of it. And he just wants us to look to him through that trial. Now, many people will say, you know, Lord, if I'd only seen the miracles in Egypt, or I'd only passed through those walls of water, or you know what, I wouldn't have done what Moses did, or I wouldn't have done what Joshua, or I wouldn't have failed like those people. And these people saw everything God had done in Egypt. And still, they drove Harleys. (laughs) And still, uh, they stumbled. They they saw miracle after miracle, and they were they'd be okay for three days, and all of a sudden they'd be thirsty. Maybe God doesn't care; He just wants us to die in the wilderness. And Moses was constantly, "Are you not paying attention to what God did in in Egypt? Did you not see how He's redeemed you? Have you not seen this?" And constantly showing them. Yet even through all Israel saw, they still grumbled, they complained, they rebelled, and they sinned. And it really shows you that external experiences have nothing to do with you know, how you're going to react to your trials. Because they had the best experiences. They saw God working in remarkable ways. The heart of the problem is always the problem of the heart. It's our heart that is the issue. And that was the heart that Israel had. They had been freed from their Egyptian bondage. They had not been freed from the bondage of their heart. Now, the second privilege they had was they went through the sea. So when Israel was about to be killed by the Egyptians, the pillar of fire, and if you've seen the Ten Commandments of the Prince of Egypt, and there's some newer ones out there I haven't seen. But in those first two movies, they have this fire move around and block the chariots of of Ramses. Um, but of the Pharaoh, to block it so Israel could cross the sea. And it says there are literal walls of water on both sides as they're walking through. And they cross on dry ground. And then, once they're across, God sends the water down on them to drown the Egyptian army. And this wasn't just an example of God's uh, power, but it was a picture of baptism. Because they passed through the water. All of Israel was identified with Moses passing through the water, which was the covenant of the law, just as a Christian is identified with Jesus Christ as he passes through the water uh, in that covenant of grace. Now, they also ate that spiritual food. In Exodus 16, it says they were hungry. They had no food. It says they murmured and God gave them manna, which they ate for 40 years. And God showed them they were to seek manna every morning. It was an omer, which is about four pints from what most commentators say. Now, if it was me, and I know God gave them the command to collect only a certain amount. But again, this is where I understand some of the struggles of Israel is my heart would say, you know what, God, I really don't want to collect it every day because that's really inefficient. It'd be more efficient if you just let me put a week's worth in my freezer because that's what I do now. You know, if I have to buy, if I have to go out and pick up 
an omer for each person in my family. I have to go out and collect it and carry four pints for each person, so I have to carry eight, eight, what is that, eight times 32 pints home and collect it for my family. And for me, I don't understand why they do that, but that's not what God commanded. He commanded them to just get a day's supply, and if they tried to do it longer than that, it would breed worms and stink. But there was a purpose behind the command. And that was daily reliance on him and his provision, on God and his provision. The manna was a picture of the living and written word. We pray in the Lord's Prayer, give us this day our daily bread. And that's the physical. But we should also be reading or eating our daily bread each day, reading the word, because that's our spiritual nourishment. And just as you can't get all your nourishment in one day and hope to last a week, you can't come to church on Sunday and try to get as much sustenance as you can because you come next Sunday, you're going to be spiritually starving. Same thing physically. If you're waiting a week, you're, you're starving. I'm hungry after a couple hours of not eating. So we need to make sure spiritually that we're in the word daily. Now, for a perspective on the miracle of the manna, there's two to three million Israelites. That's 1.6 million tons per year of manna that were needed to feed two to three million Israelites. Now, if you multiply that by 40 years, it comes to 64 million tons of manna. That's a lot of food. But that is a, a miracle that God provided. Now, there are some very liberal scholars that would say, well, you know, there's this tree out in the desert and it leaks this sap thing this kind of sap that's available to eat, and it probably could taste like honey, which is what the Bible describes. But the amount of trees that you would need to feed 3 million people uh, is ridiculous. And I think it's obviously a miracle of God. And there's no reason to assume a natural explanation for everything. God is infinite. God is supernatural. He's going to do supernatural things. Now, spiritual drink. In Exodus 17, they go to a place called Rephidim. And they murmured about no water. And God had Moses strike a rock with his staff. And then they had water, and they called the place Meribah. And I think I've, I'm sure I've brought this up before. But murmuring is so prevalent in the Bible. It's prevalent in my house as well. But when we don't get our way, all of a sudden we're like, ugh. Yeah. In fact, my, my middle son this morning, I, I forget what I told him to do, but I told him to do something, and he went like this. And he walked to his room that way, and he was muttering. He was murmuring. And this is me, and I'm trying to finish up the Bible study this time. So I stopped, and I, I go, you're murmuring. I said, you know, it's just like what the Israelites were doing. And I brought that up to him before. He goes, I know. I know. <laughs> it's very exciting in my house. But uh, most, most of these arguments my kids have heard before, especially because I've compared them to Israel. And they go, well, we've seen you do some of those things, so you're like Israel too. And I said, I know. I'm not denying that, but I'm still your parent. But anyway, they were murmuring. And then 40 years later, in Numbers 20, the children of these Israelites who came out of Egypt, they again complain about water. And this is 40 years of God providing for them continuously. And Moses is told to go up and talk to a different rock. And instead, he smites it twice. And we know that the rock represents Christ. But God told Moses to speak to it because Christ only needed to be smited once for sins. For the sins of the world. Now, Moses sinned because he failed to sanctify God in the hearts of the people. He, he misrepresented God in his attitude. Now, when he struck the rock the first time, God was angry. God wasn't going to destroy him. But he was angry with them because he'd already showed them all these things. Now, in this case, 
God wasn't angry. He was just providing. He said, okay, just talk to the rock, and they're going to get they'll get the water they need. Now, it says in the verse that the rock accompanied them through the wilderness. I don't know how that happened. There are some who say it literally happened. There are scholars who say it figuratively happened. It's interesting some of the things the rabbis come up with. One of them is the uh, the rock literally followed them through the wilderness. Now I don't know if it rolled or, or how that happened or if they carried it or, or what, what the, the case may be. But it supposedly followed them through the wilderness. Now, they say that once Moses went up to Pisgah, Mount Pisgah, and the Israelites were ready to enter the promised land, the rock apparently, this is the rabbis talking, not the Bible, the rock apparently rolled itself into the promised land and into the Lake of Gennesaret, or the Sea of Galilee. What's interesting about that is the rabbis said this, not knowing that the Messiah is symbolic of the rock, and 2,000 years later, Jesus begins his earthly ministry at the Sea of Galilee. Now, that's probably a coincidence, but I'm sure it's one that God set in place. It's, it's very interesting. Now, in John 7:37, again, speaking of the rock, it says, Jesus, on the great day of the feast, which is the eighth day of the Feast of Tabernacle, which is a solemn day on which everyone is supposed to be silent. It is a day when a procession of priests takes golden bowls down to the pool of Siloam and they bring it back up to the altar and they dump at the foot of the altar. They dump this water at the foot of the altar in memorial of the rock that went with them. Now that's supposed to be a silent day. No one's supposed to speak. No one's supposed to make any noise. And yet on that day, Jesus, who is the rock, yells out with thousands of Jews in the temple precincts, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. And this is Jesus speaking from the Spirit. So this is on the day they're honoring the rock, Jesus, the actual rock, comes up and yells in the temple on a day that they're supposed to be quiet, saying, look, I'm right here. I'm the rock that you're honoring. If you want living waters, you come to me. I will give you the spirit overflowing. Like that's uh, fascinating how God orchestrated it all. Now, the Corinthians need to realize that Israel came out of Egypt by the blood of the lamb. And Corinth also came out of the world or came out of Egypt and was saved from sin by the blood of the lamb. They were redeemed from sin by the blood of the lamb, just as Israel was when they did the Passover blood on the door. So as Israel looked forward to Christ, the Corinthians were to be looking back at Christ. Now the children of Israel came out and they had the guidance of the cloud by day and the fire by night. As they went through the Red Sea, they had deliverance and God protected them. We have the guidance of the Holy Spirit. They had the Shekinah glory that they had to follow. They didn't have the Spirit indwelt in them at the time. We have that guidance in us. The Spirit lives in us. All he needs to work is for us to be willing. And he protects us. There are things he allows us to go through, but he protects us. The children of Israel ate spiritual food. We eat the same spiritual food. They drank the water, which is a picture of the Holy Spirit. We have the Spirit in us. And the washing of water is actually a picture of the Word, as we're washing ourselves in the Word, and drinking of the water is a picture of the Spirit, which we have. And it was after the rock was smitten, just as Moses struck the rock and water poured out. When Jesus the rock was smitten, that is when at Pentecost we received the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, Paul tells the Corinthians, Israel had these great benefits, but, it says in verse 5, nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them, and that's a great understatement. Their bodies were scattered in the wilderness, 
And this word scattered is overthrown or spread out. It's actually a picture of a battlefield where the bodies are spread out everywhere. But for all their blessings and spiritual experiences, all but two died. Only two got to experience what God actually had for them because only two were faithful. And those two were Joshua and Caleb. That's why it says God was not pleased with most of them. God wasn't pleased with anybody but Joshua and Caleb. Everybody else sinned in some way, even Moses, when he misrepresented God. Now, here's where we're going to connect chapters 8 and 9. Again, as I said, the Corinthian church was taking all sorts of liberties. They were feasting in pagan temples. They were stumbling their brothers. They were thinking they were safe because they had all these past experiences and blessings. And they were a blessed church. They got Paul there to teach for a year and a half. One of the, not that education is the most important thing, but Paul was well-versed in the Old Testament. If anybody could see everything in the Old Testament, it was Paul. Most rabbis had the Old Testament, at least the law memorized. Paul, it seems, had even more than that. Uh, Gamaliel, who was his teacher, said Paul's biggest weakness is that he could never find enough to read. He was always reading. He was very well-versed in the Bible as well as other things at the time, but he was, he was knowledgeable. In the Corinthian church, they probably thought, well, we had Paul for a year and a half. We know, we know more than anybody else does. They probably had all these things in mind, yet they, they were so caught up in their privileges, they thought it lifted them above everybody else. And so they weren't worried about their younger brethren who were new or who were immature. They were more worried about the privileges that they had. And Paul said, it doesn't matter about the privileges. Israel had the best privileges, and they stumbled. They stumbled, and they didn't get to any of the, the true blessing that God had for them in the promised land. The failure of Israel is listed in verses 6 through 10. Verse 6 says, Now these things occurred as examples to us to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Now setting our hearts is uh, not to be a desirer of evil things. Numbers 11 brings out the story where the Israelites desired to have the pots of flesh is, is how Old Testament or uh, New King James and, and King James puts it. But just the flesh pots, the, flat, the, the meat, they were so sick of the manna that God had provided. They're like, we just, can we just have a little bit of meat? Uh, they've probably never seen some of the documentaries we have today on meat, but they were, they were desperate for it. I'm not saying you can't eat meat. I'm not a vegetarian. I was just bringing that up because I've, seen about six of them and some of them are gross but they forgot they were looking at what they had in egypt what did they have in egypt did they have meat yeah they had meat but what else did they have they didn't have anything they had beatings they had taskmasters they had their children killed and thrown into the nile they had a hard bondage at day and night they had to make bricks with a certain they didn't have any privileges they had, oh, if only we had leeks and onions and meat. God said, so you're willing to trade that fleshly food for the beatings that you had again. That doesn't make any sense. They were so focused on their present condition, they forgot what they had been saved from to begin with. All because they were sick of manna. Now, I don't... I imagine everybody grew up with something that they had to constantly eat and they really don't like now. There's other people who grew up with something they had to eat constantly, and they love now. Still, I'm both of those. We grew up eating spaghetti and macaroni and cheese and hamburger all the time. I don't like either of those. I don't like to, I can eat them if I have to. I'd rather starve most of the time. But I can eat them. I also grew up on peanut butter and jelly. And... I can still eat that for breakfast, lunch, and dinner and be completely happy. The Israelites, they were like, you know, we've had this manna all the time. We don't want it anymore. So Moses, at a loss, asks God what to do. And God says, they want flesh? I'm going to give it to them. And then he had quails come in, and God said, let them eat it till it comes out of their nostrils. So a wind came up and drove the quail in from the sea, 
This is from Numbers 11. And the quail were three feet deep all around the camp as a day's walk in any direction. So all that day and all that night, the people went out and gathered quail. No one gathered less than ten homers is what it said. And then they spread them out all around the camp. And then it says, while the meat was still between their teeth and it could be consumed, the anger of the Lord burned against the people and he struck them with a plague. And therefore, the name of the place was Kibroth Hateava, because they buried the people who craved other food. That name means the graves of craving or the graves of lust. Because they were craving or they were lusting after things that God hadn't provided for them. See, God is going to be patient and patient and patient until he finally gives people what they want. And then they're going to realize, I didn't really want this. This wasn't what I needed. Um, But he gave them the desire of their hearts. So Israel served as, as an example that we should not be desirers of evil things, lusting for things outside the will of God or even God's provision. But to be content with the bread that he's given us each day that he gave them. Israel failed in that they could not say no to their desires and that they should not lust after evil things. Now, verse 7 says, Do not be idolaters as some of them were. It is written, The people sat down to eat, drink, and rose up to indulge in revelry. The actual word there in Hebrew is a verb that translates as sex play, which is what we would know as a drunken orgy. So that's what they were doing. Now that happened when Moses was on the mountain getting the Ten Commandments. And they come down, and you guys have all seen the Ten Commandments, hopefully. And Joshua's like, there's a sound of war in the camp. And Shalnesi goes, no, there's a sound of partying or whatever he says. Whatever it is, he's, imagine Charlton Heston saying it better. But he's all, it's not war. It's sin is basically what he's saying. And so they were satisfying their own desires. Now, sexual immorality, it always follows idolatry. When you refuse to acknowledge God and create one that fulfills your own desires, sexual immorality is usually the first thing that happens. And you can see it from the Babylonian gods to the Philistines gods to the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Greeks, the Romans. Sex was a huge part of their worship of the gods, and it's always the first thing that follows. Verse 8. We should not commit sexual immorality, as some of them did, and in one day 23,000 of them died. This is referring to Balaam and Balak. Balaam hired by Balak to curse Israel, tried three times to curse Israel, and only blessing came out. He he was supposed to curse Israel, and instead he says, How lovely are your tents, O Jacob. There is no iniquity in you. Now he says this after Israel has been murmuring this whole time against God after all these struggles that they've done. This is still what God allows Balaam to prophesy. And I think that's interesting because Paul himself told Corinth, he said, I desire to present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. He said, I want to present you as he said, you're stumbling, you're messing up, but this is how I want to present you to Christ. The bride of Christ is beautiful because of Christ's completed work on the cross. It has nothing to do about our performance whatsoever. We're not beautiful in any way in in and of ourselves. Israel wasn't beautiful in and of themselves. God said, you're a stubborn, stiff-necked people. I have chosen you, but you're stubborn. And with the same with Christ or Christians, we're beautiful because we're adorned with God's grace, not for any other performance on our part. So Balaam says, I can't curse them. You need to get them to come out from underneath God's blessing on their own accord. And Satan, he can't curse us. He can't do anything to us but tempt us. He can try to tempt us into forfeiting the blessings God has given up for us, but he can't take those blessings from us. He can't forcibly do it. And that's what he does when he's trying to get us to sin. That's what he did with the Moabites. 
You can't defeat them with Moabite men, is Balak, but you can defeat them with the, little, with the Moabite girls. They can tempt them out of God's blessing. And they did. And 23,000 fell in one day. They died. So Paul's point is they experienced God's blessing. This is for Israel. But they never took the privilege and the responsibility of those blessings with them. So he's trying to challenge the Corinthian church. You're saved, but why are you involved in fornication? Why are you divisive? Why are you drunk? Why are you acting carnally? Why do you think you know so much? Just throw those things aside and run the race. Focus on Christ as your overarching goal. Stop focusing on the little things that don't matter. Yes, you're saved, but what are you doing with your salvation? And they were disqualifying themselves from service. They weren't doing anything for the kingdom. Verse 9. We should not test Christ as some of them did and were killed by snakes. And this is that new generation that rose up. Those serpents had been in the desert for years. Yet God had protected Israel this whole time from them. Yet after continuous complaining, God took away the protection to get them to refocus. Their eyes were off. They were constantly complaining. And the only way they could be healed if they were bit by the snakes is if they looked at a bronze serpent that Moses had Joshua put up on a pole. And all they had to do, if they were facing this way, was turn around and look, and they were fine. That was it. That is all they had to do. Just as with our faith in Christ, we don't have to do any works. We just have to turn and face Christ and place our faith in him. But they tested Christ, and they were judged for it. It says in verse 10, and do not grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroying angel. They grumbled so often. Commentators aren't even sure which story they're talking about when Paul mentions this. It's probably a compilation of all of them because it happens so much. And we need to make sure we're not (laughs) whining and griping about our circumstances because our children, our children follow our example. And I'm sure I'm absolutely positive my kids have seen me grumble and murmur at some point or another. Um, I don't deny that I've done those things. I am not perfect. Sometimes I see my kids act exactly the way I do, the way I have, and I go, well, that's my fault. But we need to make sure we're not grumbling. I mean, do all things without grumbling and complaining. My kids know that verse by heart because it's mentioned to them every week. (laughs) Verse 11, these things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come. This is a literal history, and there's two reasons to pay attention to it. One, as it's already said in verse 1, these are examples. And two, these are warnings, they're challenges, they're admonitions for us to take advantage of. What did Israel do? Good, I don't want to do that. What did Israel do here? Okay, that was their issue there. I don't want to fall into that. So, and it's not just Israel in these circumstances that he mentions. Paul mentions following positive examples uh, multiple places in his writings. Peter mentions uh, the Old Testament written as something to follow as an example as well. Taking heed of these things so we don't fall into the same traps that they do. And Because we have this to look at, the word to look at, we actually have a greater responsibility because we can learn from Israel's mistakes. We have 6,000 years of history to follow. Verse 12. So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. New King James says it this way. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. The only thing between standing and falling is being careful or taking heed. There's no sitting down in your Christian walk. You're you're moving forward. You stand in the faith, but you're running the race. We don't have to fall. It's not necessary as long as we're being careful, we're taking heed. All of us will fall because we all have tendency to be distracted 
but we need to not make sure we don't stay down. We need to keep getting up. Now pay attention to how you are running the race, to each step we take, to each lesson that Israel, Israel's example has taught us. Now, again, for the Corinthians, their application was, look, give up yourself and love others. Israel was self-focused. Israel did this. Israel did this. Israel did this. Israel had privileges. You have privileges. Don't focus on that. But for us, we have those same things where we can think maybe we know more than somebody else, or maybe we think we're farther along, or maybe we think, well, we're not in that sense, so thank God for that. But when I look at anybody in this room, I don't look at anybody who's beneath me. I look at people who are running the race with me, who if some, one of you stumbles, then I should be coming alongside you to help pick you up. You're not someone I need to run past and try to get to the finish line first. We all reach it together. One commentator said about temptation, temptation works like rocks in a harbor. When the tide is low, everybody sees the danger and avoids it. But Satan's strategy and temptation is to raise the tide and cover over the dangers of temptation. Then he likes to crash you upon the covered rocks. And we're all going to succumb to that at some point. But again, we're all running the race to help pick each other up. Verse 13 says, and this is very popular, so I'm sure most of you know it. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. Whatever temptation we're going through, you're going through, I'm going through, God isn't thinking, oh, I never thought they'd be tempted by that. Oh, I can't believe I forgot about that one. No, God knows everything we're going through. Jesus went through everything we're going through temptation-wise. Maybe not in the same way as the 20th century, but the heart is the same in every century. Jesus had to go through everything that was possible to go through. What you're tempted of is not uncommon. The entire planet is plagued by the fallen nature and because of this, there are no excuses. We can't say, well, I have, I'm a compulsive liar and I can't help it. No, you may be a compulsive liar, but that's the flesh and you're born into that. Other people will say, well, I just can't help myself. Well, I just can't stop eating. So I'm not a glutton. It's just a disease of overeating. Or someone will say, I have the disease of alcoholism or there's so many excuses that we can come up with. You know, there was one point, one point, um, I was probably, I was in my early twenties and my friend and I would go to the store late at night. We'd go to Ralph's cause late at night they'd put out the bargain steaks cause like, Oh, these are steaks are past the good date. So they would put out these London broils that were like four pounds. And I was like, well, that one's just for me. And it, I, and I'm being serious, it really was just for me. My friend would get like a two and a half to three pound ribeye and we'd buy the fixings to go with it and we'd like saute mushrooms and onions and then we'd make, and we're doing this at like midnight and we'd make mashed potatoes and some other sides to go with it and we'd finally eat about one in the morning and I ate everything and topped it off with a quart of ice cream and I would go to bed and I was like 130 at the time. I went, I went to bed looking pregnant. And I'd wake up eight hours later and be like, yes, my stomach's flat again. And I could do that. I could, I could, I'm not justifying gluttony, by the way. I was being a glutton. I'm not saying that's right. I was happy at the time because my metabolism allowed it. But, but I was being a glutton. I was sinning in that case. I may have been justifying it because, well, I've got a metabolism so I can eat whenever I want, however I want, as much as I want. That's not a good excuse. I could say, I could have said that at the time, but it was still sin. Everybody's prone to desires of the flesh. There are always going to be different ones. There are some things that people are tempted by 
that I look at and I go, well, that doesn't, uh, that doesn't affect me. At least it's not a temptation for me. Some of you are going to be like, well, tempt- food's not a temptation for me at all. Other people are going to say, well, alcohol is not a temptation for me. There's different things that we're all going to be caught up in. But that's why I say we're all on the same level. We're all running the race. We're all going to pick each other up out of whatever it is. Because maybe if, like, alcohol is not a temptation for me. And I could say, you know what, I can, let me pick you up. Whatever the case may be, not that you can't drink. You just can't be drunk. Whatever the case may be, <clears throat> we're all prone to sin, to the same temptations. There's nothing new. And also remember that it's not a sin to be tempted. It is a sin to yield yourself to that temptation. It says in James chapter 1, verses 13 through 15, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desire and enticed. And desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. It's the desire within us. And remember, you're going to be tempted in three ways. The same way Eve was, the same way Jesus was. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Satan is unoriginal. He's used the same strategy for thousands of years. And the key to overcoming it is the same way that Jesus did. Jesus submitted himself to the word of God. And he allowed the spirit to work. He always combated, combated Satan's temptations with, it is written. And it's the same way that we need to as well. Whenever I feel tempted, there's always a plethora of verses that come to my head. Sometimes uh, the spirit is strong and I'm able to overcome it. Other times... You know, I may fall into something. But we all have the power to overcome it. Jesus is never going to leave us. He's never going to make sure that it's something that we can't overcome. There's always a way of escape. One commentator put it as, imagine you're surrounded by an army. And there's a pass through the mountains. That one pass is your way of escape. It may be a rocky escape, but it's an escape. He didn't say it was going to be an easy one. He just said there was going to be a way out to bear under it. So I think there's three keys, and I'll close up with this. And really, I thought about this study mainly because these things are what I go through with my children on a daily basis. And I... I saw it going on in their hearts and in their lives, and then I could see it more clearly in my own because I saw what they were going through, and I went, ugh. I can see that they're struggling. And these are a lot of the same things that I share with them. Now, several keys, and I've mentioned the first one already, is know the word so that you can combat with the word. A swordsman becomes a master with much practice, and you need to be practicing reading the word. The second thing is to be vigilant. You need to know what to look for. You don't let your guard down. We already know he's going to get us with three things. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. You need to focus, not let your guard down. No soldier in the midst of battle stops fighting and goes, oh, wait a second, I left the stove on. You know, they they stay focused on what they're doing. And the third thing is we need to be prudent. It says in Proverbs 22.3 and 27.12, it says the same proverb. They're exactly alike. <clears throat> a prudent man foresees evil and hides himself, but the simple pass on and are punished. So don't just know what to look for, but look ahead for those things to avoid. We need to be proactive in keeping ourselves from sin. We don't hang around things that are going to cause us to stumble. We don't hang around with people who are going to affect our lives negatively. They need to come hang out with us if they want to be affected positively. But if we go hang out with a group of people 
were going to stumble us, we need to not do that. Jesus didn't have to go hang around with sinners. They sought him because he was compassionate to them. They followed him around and he ministered to them. He didn't go into the worst parts of the city that I'm aware of and go, uh, start sitting down and go into a bar or whatever it is and, and be affected. We want to make sure we're having a positive effect. We want them to come looking for us because they see the hope that lies within us. I'm going to close with a quote from Jonathan Edwards. I posted this on Facebook last week, I believe. A true and faithful Christian does not make holy living an accidental thing. It is his great concern. As the business of the soldier is to fight, so the business of the Christian is to be like Christ. We're going to have temptations. We're going to fall. We're going to be tempted with the exact same things Israel was, Eve was, Jesus was. But we can overcome them. Holy living and following Christ isn't something that happens on accident. It's something we do very purposefully every day. When I come home from work sometimes, and Jen texts me throughout work how the kids are doing, and when they're being bad, I know what I'm coming home to. And I am purposely in my head on my seven-minute drive home. It's not very far. I'm praying going, Lord, how do I deal with this? Give me the wisdom from your word. What am I going to say? Help me not to get upset or frustrated. So I have to purposely plan ahead of time and ask for God's wisdom. And we should be doing that daily. If we know, something, if we know that work's going to be bad, I know tomorrow at work, it's going to be a rough morning. I know exactly what's coming. It's the day right after coupons ended. And it's going to be a madhouse on the floor. So I am mentally and spiritually preparing myself to make sure I'm in the right frame of mind. And we need to do that sometimes with work. Sometimes maybe you're going to film your reunion. You're like, oh, I can't believe that uncle is there. Whatever the case may be, we need to make sure we're mentally preparing ourselves and make sure that holy living is our great concern. So let's go ahead and pray. Lord, I do thank you for your word. And Lord, we're all going to stumble. But Lord, you're the one who's going to pick us up. It's never going to be anything that we can't overcome without you. You're always there to lean on. You're always going to make that way of escape. Help us to live in such a way that glorifies you. Lord, thank you for what you have done, for the grace you've given us. In Jesus' name, amen.